Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Live from the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, the following program produced with an artistic vengeance by Magic Matt Allen. When are you going to come to the point, point where, where you tell the truth about where we're broadcasting? We're broadcasting from a garage somewhere. No, 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 no. <laughs> or we're in our secret bunker, oh. the Lighten Up Lounge. That's fine. Yeah. Produced by Matt Allen, I'm the legendary Burl Bear, raised on records, born to rock and roll. And I write books. Uh, Howard Lapidus, manager of the Star. Yes, uh, yes, I am, and 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 happy to be here. And we can talk about the other guys in a second because this is my time now. Oh, oh God, am I this excited? This is my time. I think I'm getting turgid. All right, <coughs> I'm I'm waving my time. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm waving. <laughs> Mark C. G. Boyer, our fact checker. Hello. Uh, <laughs> Howard is quite obstreperous, isn't he? He's yeah. I know he has obstreperous throat. We got some antibiotics for him. Frank J. Hagen's here Hello. as well. And uh, proving that we can give nepotism a bad name. <laughs> well, yeah. We, we, tell the audience. Tell. Uh, Lee Goldberg, one of the most brilliant authors of the 21st century, is our guest today. Uh, let's ask our producer. Uh, Lee, are you there, son? I'm here. Oh, yay! Hello. What a coup to have this brilliant... Uh, New York Times best-selling author celebrating but before the, you go what? on and list all these credits and really brag about this guy yeah I think you have to make adequate representation I'm his uncle there you go all right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey Lee how is he your uncle is he like your he's my mother's brother that's what I thought that's what I was afraid of <laughs> you were fearful? No, no I want you to know we're all really impressed that you admit this pub publicly. Yeah. I wouldn't. Well. And, right. and you've had a successful career in spite of that, and in spite of putting that at the end of your bio, that you're related to the legendary Burl Bear. I, I wasn't aware that was part of my bio. By the way, I would have that checked then. <laughs> he usually tries to leave that off. Somewhere in one of the bios, there it is. It, it's written in crayon, so it might be Burl. Yeah. I think Burl may have added that to my Wikipedia listing. No, no, I haven't touched your Wikipedia listing. I only touched mine because it said I had three testicles. and I, that's It said my... you had a lot of balls for writing, Burl. Yeah. <laughs> for even attempting, yeah. Well, Lee does come from a fine heritage of, uh, of writers. Uh, his mother actually had a couple books. Uh, yeah, she had one book, and she also was a society editor for the Palm Springs Desert Sun, the Oakland Tribune, the Contra Costa Times. She went to parties for a living. It was a tough job. Oh, yeah, really rough. <laughs> she probably complained about it at some point, right? Come she was on. the luckiest woman in the world. She loved going to parties, and she got some schmuck to pay her for it. There you go. There you go. I wish I was that lucky. <laughs> You're the schmuck. <laughs> I'm the schmuck. <laughs> I knew I fit in here somewhere. That's right. And uh, actually, uh, Lee and his uh, younger brother made literary history recently. Okay. Lee, go ahead and brag about that. Um, we both hit the New York Times top ten bestseller list at the same week. I hit at number one, huh. and my brother Todd hit at number six. 
<laughs> oh, you're going to rub that in now, are you? <laughs> I'm sure, yeah. Todd loves hearing you say, oh, I hit a number one, and Todd showed up. <laughs> yeah, well, it doesn't matter where we are in the New York Times bestseller list. The fact we both got there and in the same week was really no, that's, quite remarkable. That is remarkable, us. and congratulations to you and Todd. Uh, let's talk about your book. Well, my new book is called True Fiction. It's available now to anyone who's an Amazon Prime member. It'll be available to the rest of the world on April 1st. And it's presently, at least it was up until an hour ago, um, 10 straight days as the number one best-selling book on Amazon. That must have been a real nice treat to wake up to that. It was. I mean, actually, the, the surprise and the treat was the first day it was released, it was an instant number one bestseller. I thought there was a mistake. I mean, how could that be? Um, but yeah, it, you, you only bought 40 copies yourself, so you yeah. figured, you know. <laughs> who, who knew that's all it took to go on the bestseller? <laughs> that's all it took. <laughs> no one else is buying. That's all it takes. Well, that's well, that's uh, that, that's, uh, that's good. I'm glad we get to talk about that today, along with the rest of your, uh, believe it or not, uh, being Burl's nephew, illustrious career because yeah. it is. A, a, it wasn't a handicap. No, I yeah. guess not. Yeah. Well, I finally overcome it. It took 30 or 40 years. But. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, now, Uncle Burl. We'll get to your stuff in a second. Just growing up with Uncle Burl. Uh, Uncle Burl never grew up. Well, there's that. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you know that. I mean, what was he like as an uncle when when you were younger? Dangerous. All right, now let's move on to the book. <laughs> now that's an interesting. One. <clears throat> hey, I was thrilled, Lee, when I saw the name of your protagonist. Oh, Ian Ludlow. Yes. yes. The protagonist in, in my book, True Fiction, is named Ian Ludlow, which was the pseudonym I used for the first four novels I ever had published. The first one was published when I was 19 years old. It was called 357 Vigilante by <laughs> Ian Ludlow. So it'll be on the shelf next to Robert Ludlum. And Ian for Ian Fleming. So people would look at the book and go, Oh, yeah. Ian Ludlow. You know, I think I read something by him. It wasn't bad. And plus, at the time, he was the best-selling author in America, and his covers were really dull. They were all hammer and sickles and Doric columns and boring stuff like that. I had big explosions, women with giant hooters, guys with giant guns. <laughs> I, I figured I'd do better. And, and, and the books did do well. The first book was a bestseller. It came out the same week this guy Bernard Getz blew away some muggers on New York subway trains, so vigilantes were hot. Um, and it seems like, yeah. The it, movie it, rights hired me to write the script, and my TV and, and film career was born, which is where I've, I've toiled for most of the last uh, few decades. Yeah, everyone made money off of uh, 357 Vigilante, I think, except me. Uh, even Whoa. one of my cousins did. Except me. I didn't make any money either because Pinnacle Books went out of business before they gave me my first royalty check. No, <laughs> really? Yes. And then when and they came book, back under new ownership, you were already screwed out of everything? Yes. My books were tied up in the big all these lawsuits involving uh, the Pinnacle's bankruptcy for 15 years, oh. and I never got a dime out of it. It took me that long to get the rights back to the books, but I might got paid for the, the movie rights and the... And well, yeah, the I remember rights. that, yeah. But, but I never got a dime from the actual book. Um, you know, I wrote four books before the first one came out. So they released three of the four books, and I never saw a nickel. The fourth book, I ended up releasing myself 
decades after um, after they were the original book. Well, what I love about this is that you can read in your new book a novel about a best-selling thriller author. And that best-selling thriller author actually has books that you can buy, which I find fascinating. I even yeah, met that author. We well, call that self-indulgence. Yes. No, no, Carl Reiner said, write what you know. And, the, the, and you should, by the way. Well, this book is very much writing what I know. It's about a guy who's a recovering TV writer and thriller author who... Um, was asked by the CIA to provide terrorism scenarios. Now, I haven't done that, but some of my friends have, like Lee Child and Michael Connolly and Brad Meltzer. Are you talking and about uh, the Pro Project Angel, named after David Angel? I don't know who's named, by, <laughs> named after David Angel, but, <laughs> but the government's been doing this going back to World War I, um, <clears throat> talking to artists and screenwriters and other visionaries <clears throat> who, who are imaginative in ways that bureaucrats aren't, so they can anticipate terrorism scenarios that might happen. And after 9-11, they, they did it in a big way. Yeah, that was um, the Project Angel one, because David Angel was killed on the flight from Boston. Oh, he was a TV producer. Yes. From Wings. Wings. But... Um, so my scenario is a writer, not unlike me, consults with the CIA, gives them a bunch of terrorism scenarios, forgets about it, and then one of his scenarios comes true, and he discovers that basically the CIA took his scenario and made it happen. And now they're trying to kill him because he's the only person who can... Actually, they've been trying to kill him for a while, but he's been... Do <laughs> his clueless. Yeah, 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 you know, Lee, you, you wrote about it, but I'm very interested in... Um, guys that come up with these scenarios and obviously to write about it you had to research it. Tell, tell us a little bit about these guys and how they operate. You mean the writers? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. we sit and we make crap up. I mean, no, we no, do no, research, I... <laughs> but most of it's just sitting around staring at the wall. Um, that's that's why the, the military, Homeland Security, CIA likes picking our brains is because we're out-of-the-box thinkers and come up with things they won't otherwise anticipate. I mean, the whole notion of two planes crashing into the World Trade Center is something I did as an episode of Martial Law back in 1999. So, so these, it was these you. aren't new. So the, so the terrorists read your crap and go and do it. Uh, well, I don't know if that's the case, but that's the scenario for... <laughs> I, didn't mean to say, I didn't mean to say terrorists. No. <laughs> Do you remember the scene in... Um, that's Mark Boyer asking the question, by uh, the way. Clear and present danger, uh, the ambush scene? No. What are you, that's, insane? Uh, are you, are you asking... is ambushed with his friends uh, uh, as they're in Colombia. The, uh, the FBI and, uh, took that scene and used it as a training exercise. So that's the same kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you get to I go to the head of the class. Howard. Yeah. You, let's talk about movies that our guest had nothing to do with. <laughs> no, let's talk about the subject. <laughs> no, we're, not no, talking, I no, we're here to talk about the guest. I ha the uh, Lee, sorry, I have to give this guy crap. <laughs> We're, we have a guest. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> we ask the guests pertinent questions. Like, for instance... Like, why isn't he here with us in-house? Exactly. He, because he lives about 20 minutes from here, but he's well, not here. Well, one reason is I, I had some oral surgery uh, yesterday, and uh, I wasn't so sure how well I'd be speaking today. And you had your uh, uncle removed. 
God, they're picking on me horribly. You're gonna have to defend me here in a minute. Yeah, no, but I getting back to it, I, I was actually asked to submit one of the scenarios to Project Angel. Frank, we don't care about your life. <laughs> I do. I want to hear about this. Lee wants to hear about it too. So no, no, it's not that. It's just you know, it's you when you come up with those scenarios, you wonder what happens to them because you can't then turn around and turn it into a plot for something. And oh, sure you can. I mean, when these, these guys who gave ideas to the CIA, they were just spitballing ideas, but the CIA didn't own them. Um, if, if Michael Connolly or Lee Child or Brad Meltzer came up with a good idea in the room while talking to the CIA, they could turn around and write it. It was not like um, they're being paid for their ideas. They're just offering notions that the CIA and Homeland Security might not have thought of that might expose uh, vulnerabilities in our security. Does this because happen they're often? Imaginative thinkers. They're, yeah. they're pragmatic. Do they bring yeah. them in often, or is this a one-time thing? Or what? no, it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. There's, there's, it's not just authors. They they talk to poets and uh, graphic artists and anybody who's creative. When they get it's to disc jockeys, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I said anybody who's creative. Thank you. <laughs> now we're going to start with one another, are we? <laughs> oh, that's showbiz. Yeah. So there you were, minding your own business, and uh, having done uh, the Monk books and Diagnosis Murder and all these franchises that you don't own, you wisely decided if you're going to put that much effort into something, it might as well be something you own. Am I correct? Well, no. Um, okay, let's clear that up. <laughs> I, I go where the opportunities are, and I did the Monk books because I was working on Monk at the time, and Monk was very popular, and um, that was a great opportunity to write those 15 Monk books, and I stopped with it stopped making financial sense for me. I've done a ton of original novels. I've done 25 dead man novels for Amazon's 47 North imprint. I've, I, I've written about 48 different novels and nonfiction books in my career. And you know, a portion of those, the, the 15 month novels, the eight diagnosis murder novels were franchises I didn't own, but I, I've co-authored five books with Janet Ivanovich, and, and that was great fun. Oh, I bet it was. I, I so so you, worked for, you worked for and partnered with my dear friend Fred Silverman along the way there. Yes, I, I did a TV series with him called Diagnosis, Diagnosis Murder, murder. For, right. for many years. Now, I'm I actually in the middle of reading his book, which is, I have the only copy. It has not been published yet. Just so you know, get to it when it does, because it's unbelievable. Who's publishing it? Don't know yet. Probably Syracuse between you and I. I shouldn't be talking about this, but but yeah, uh, uh, and it'll it, this thing will double as a um, a textbook and, and, a, and a great read. Well, I've spent the whatever it is nine hours watching his interviews on the archive of American Television. Right, and that that if he just transcribed those interviews, he'd have an, a book. Oh yeah, well this I've got five hundred pages. <laughs> in my house in a three-ring binder. Um, I, 20 years ago, this is something for off here, but 20 years ago I said you should do a book, and he absolutely refused. And then the, the, the tale wends from there to the fact that I've got this thing in my house now that I'm reading. But it took him 20 years to do it because he refused to do it. Well, it should be fascinating. Can't wait to hear all about you will. You know, everything he did at CBS, and NBC, and ABC, and... Uh, his later years as an independent producer. Correct. It's all almost in that order. Though I'm, I've been disappointed. I read Dick Van Dyke's biography, and everything he says about diagnosis murder and me is not true. But, you know... <laughs> Was it good things or bad things? 
Um, bad things, or he takes credit for things that never happened. There you go. Just, <laughs> you know, you're allowed to do that when you're writing your memoir. I, I, uh, I, I give him that. Mm-hmm. Let's talk more about Lee Goldberg stuff. Yeah, Lee Goldberg's a bright young man. Yes, uh, in spite of his... I was 15 years old when he was born. Remember? <laughs> yeah, I remember. Yeah. I remember it was just 30-some years ago. 40. Yeah. How the hell old are you now, Lee? <laughs> You can't do the math? Um. No, no, I can't do the math. In my age and senility, I'm lucky if I could do page count on my own books. I'm going to say... I am am 55 years old. There you go. Yeah, how about that? That means I'm... I'm not quite the young man you're portraying me to be. Relative to me, you are. I'm sitting here with my feet on my walker, washing my dentures, (laughs) coloring my hair, and... Yeah, I do that. A fake prescription for Viagra. Yep. That was you're, you're right on track. That was everybody that was in the deli this afternoon when I was having lunch. Oh my God! Yeah. <laughs> so I definitely not Walker Texas Ranger there. Yeah. I was uh, getting all excited ordering your your uh, your book, and I because I have Amazon Prime, I should be able to get it right away. But I also could advance order the next one, which comes out next year. Yeah, it's already written, already copy edited, and uh, there should be a cover up on Amazon any time now. And um, I'm doing a third book for them as well. Wow, this could and, be good. Now you got a movie and, movie deal in the works yet? Um, not in the works yet, but we have had interest, obviously, because of the um, success of the book the last few days. Wow, I like that stuff. That's the way to work it. What was that? Your dog? Yeah. No, it's dentures. <laughs> it's my, dentures. My, my, my dog has a keen awareness of when I'm on the radio or on a podcast. Ah, smart. Are you all, uh, is Janet Ivanovich going to come back and have you do any more stuff with her? Well, Janet um, and I did five books and three novellas together. And when the time came for a sixth book, I was tied up. So my good friend Raymond Benson stepped oh. in. And he's written the sixth book in the series. It's called The Mark, and it comes out in August. He's very good, Raymond Benson. He is. He is. He wrote the James Bond novel, so he's perfect to pick up where I left off on uh, the Fox and Hair books. Wonderful. Good choice. Well, the thing is, is that we are, we've both been very fortunate to hobnob with talented people. Uh, hoping it would rub off, but uh, not always. It has for Lee and not for you. Yeah, that's the way it goes. Yeah. No, I say, I've, I've done okay. I can't, I'm not complaining yet. Well, your nephew's got 48 books, and you've got 12. Mm. Or is it 14 now? I think it's 14, 15. Yeah. He writes faster than I do. Apparently yeah, so. He's a quick typist. Your, your books require <laughs> a couple of years of research. Well, well that's, all, that's also a problem when you're writing true crime. You have to do research. You can't just make it all up. Although I would like to a few times. So how do you, how that, what is that process of making it all up? Well, I have to get an idea, of course. No. And, and I usually start with a conflict. You know, what can I do to put my hero in an unusual situation that will bring out his strengths and weaknesses? And, and that's sort of where the story comes from. There. I mean, I, the, the way true fiction came about is I was reading, I think, one of the Lee Child books, and I, while I enjoy the Born Identity and the Reacher novels and that kind of thing, the heroes always have these special skills. They're always just perfectly capable of handling any situation. And I'm much more drawn to people who are incapable of handling any situation. <laughs> Easier to identify with them. And I thought it'd be much more fun to have somebody who doesn't have special skills, who finds himself in a situation that Jason Bourne or Jack Reacher would find himself in. And what if that person 
is the guy who writes the Jack Reacher and Jason Bourne stuff. Because I know Lee Child. He's no Jack Reacher. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> what would happen if he found himself in the kind of situation that Reacher would? And I, I just I went from there, and it was a lot of fun. So the, he has to pretty much write himself out of the situation. Yes, he does. But you, you're talking about research. I have another series that I've sold to the same publisher. Um, it's a police procedural series about a, uh, the youngest female detective in the L.A. Sheriff's Department homicide unit. Mm. And that book comes out in February of 2019. It's called Lost Hills. And that was based, or at least inspired, by a real case that I couldn't get out of my head. And in that situation, I sort of did a Burl Bear. I went and I interviewed, I didn't interview the killer or, or the families of the victims or anything like that, but I did interview the investigators, the forensic technicians, and everybody involved in the investigative side, and then spun a completely fictional story um, based on that. But the, right. the key clues and, and everything, it's sort of like law and order. My, my book is ripped from the headlines, inspired by a real case, but it's very, very different. Yeah. This is not a real case. <laughs> like they say on law and order, where you can practically follow along in the newspaper. <clears throat> Any likeness to real individuals <laughs> is, is exactly as intended. That comes, yeah, that's... Yeah, yeah the names of the I, I, to I love the doing a movie, though, that uh, says inspired by real events. Yeah, I the, love you know, that. It's supposed opening. to be historical. Like, like Freddy Got Fingered, the, that movie, yeah, it, it was <laughs> inspired by, by real events. Um, so the horse scene, that was the real that event. That actually happened. Yeah. All of that happened. Yeah. People don't know that. All happened. I love Lee that. has no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> Lee, have you ever seen Freddy Got Fingered? No, I can't say that I have. Well, you uh, you have missed a unique cinema experience. Yeah. Howard won. How many Razzies did you win on that one? Well, we won. Uh, we were nominated for eight. <laughs> we won five. I got to take one home as producer of the film. So I have a Razzie in my house. I'd like, hey, look, I'm not getting an Oscar. I have a Razzie. Well, I do. I do have the honor of having been singled out by Rolling Stone at one point for having written the worst hour of television on the worst show in television history. Which was what? Dude, it was by an the way, episode of Baywatch. Excellent. Oh, <laughs> by the way, excellent. Because you know what? It's. I, I don't mind being singled out for the worst. <clears throat> it's rare you get. You, you have a better shot at the worst than you do at the best. But they were absolutely right. Of course they were. <laughs> Absolutely right. Which episode were. was this, Lee? It was a horrific episode where a mobster's mall hides out from assassins by joining the lifeguard rookie school. <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. Where did that story go? Is that a Michael Burke idea, or who, who the hell came up with it? I don't know who the hell came up with it, but it was truly atrocious. <laughs> but not, not the worst thing I've ever written, to be honest with you. The worst thing I've ever written escaped Rolling Stone's uh, attention. It was an episode of the New Adventures of Flipper. <laughs> <laughs> not to be confused with the old Adventures of Flipper. Where in your career were you? <laughs> Purgatory. <laughs> and how did that come about? I'm, I'm actually fascinated. The New Adventures of Flipper? Yes. I mean, I know about the show, it, but it, your it relationship was, with the show. It was God playing a practical joke on me. Um, I was working on a TV series called Sequest with Roy Scheider. Oh. And one of the characters on the show was a talking dolphin. Right. 
And, you know, I found myself sitting there writing dialogue for a dolphin, and I, I made a vow to myself that I would never write for a dolphin again. Oh, that's the last thing you do. So naturally, six months later, I was writing for the new adventures of Flipper. That's perfect. Um, a good friend of mine um, had taken over that show, and I owed him a favor, and he called me up and basically called the favor in. Wow. And Jessica Alba was the star of that show. You will not find that on her resume. No. And, and I didn't see the flipper thing on your resume. So let's... Oh, oh, it's there. I mean, okay. IMDb now makes it hard to avoid this stuff. That's correct. But I didn't see it on the stuff you publish. Well, I don't admit it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Except on this show. Right. What was I remember there was a, on uh, when you were working on uh, Baywatch, one of the actresses came to you and complained that she wasn't getting enough. No, 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 no. There was, there was. Well, yes and no. There was. Sean Weatherly, who felt that the show was not... She thought she was going to be doing St. Elsewhere on the Sand. Uh. And we tried to explain to her that, <laughs> no, that's not going to be it. So she asked to be killed off, and we had her eaten by a shark. I remember that. But later, we had another actress, Erica Liniak, who was twice a Playboy centerfold. Ooh. She was basically... Um, she was our Pamela Anderson before Pamela Anderson. When the show was a network show, Erica Liniak was our, our cheesecake. And... Um, we were like, I don't know, seven episodes in or something, and we noticed she stopped wearing her bathing suit. She was wearing it, but she put a jacket on over it, and when it was time for a lifeguard to dive in the water, it was her stunt double, who wasn't nearly as well-built as she was. So the exec producer of the show um, at the time, Ernie Wallengren, called her in and said, well, what are you doing? Why, why aren't you um, wearing your bathing suit and diving in the water? She said, well, I don't want to exploit my body. It's Baywatch! <laughs> Here you did two centerfolds in, in Playboy. And then she said, well, couldn't I be one of those lifeguards who stays in the tower and the stories come to her? And Ernie said, of course you can. But here's a little known fact about those lifeguards. They're the ones most easily digested by sharks. <laughs> Following episode, she was tearing off her jacket and diving in the water. She just needed to be properly motivated. Yeah. yeah, they're the ones that are normally written off the show in about a week. Yeah. yeah. So this was during NBC before NBC, and then was taken over by All American, and then turned into the world's most successfully syndicated well, show. Baywatch was a Friday at eight. Um, <clears throat> show on NBC, and it was successful, but it was expensive, and um, NBC was kind of embarrassed by it. It was, you know, tits and ass and lowbrow, and they kind of like this show. <laughs> after one season. And the, But the demand overseas for the show was very, very high. So Grant Tinker, who owned the company that produced Baywatch, licensed the syndication rights to uh, Michael Burke and Doug Schwartz, the creators, for a buck. And those guys went to All-American and Fremantle and sold it all over the world. And the show then ran for 11 more years, became the most successful show in the world. And I think Grant Tinker made a dollar. And because the show accumulated so many seasons, they never had to put the original NBC season into syndication. Therefore, Grant Tinker and all of us who worked on the first season didn't make a nickel <laughs> off of the success of Baywatch. That's a tragic story. Actually, it's I like hearing that. Yeah, but you know what? I'm not saying Kaddish uh, for <laughs> Grant Tinker's bank account and his... Uh, uh... Well, no, well, wait a minute. What about my bank account? I mean, because I didn't get all that money from Baywatch, I had to start writing crap like the new adventures of Flipper. <laughs> now, how did that do by, overseas? By the, way, by the way, Lee, I'm not saying Kaddish for your bank account yeah. either, so let's, let's get, get, get call a spade a shovel. Uh, I can recall what you working on, Cobra. 
What? When? I mean, I did a show called Cobra. Not one of my finer moments, but yes, yes. yes. Uh, did you do any other for uh, for that gentleman? Steve Cannell? Yeah. Yes, I did. I did a series called Hunter with Fred Dreyer. Oh, I like that. Stephen J. Cannell, nice guy. Totally. Nicest guy in the world. Yes. He was wonderful. Not only did I do two TV series with him, Cobra and and Hunter, but I had him as a guest star on four episodes of Diagnosis Murder. And we also spent a lot of time doing uh, book conferences and signings around the country together. He was terrific. Oh, Ian Ogilvy was on the show a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about you. You remember Ian? Ogilvy? Yes, he did. He did three episodes of Diagnosis Murder for me as well. Yes, he was talking about that. He said that, that, that you were very cruel to him, jokingly, and that you insisted that he play an American. <laughs> yes, but he was great. He was great. <laughs> he thought you were just doing that to make fun of his inability no, to no, do No, no, no. The, the only time I did anything really cruel to Ian was we had him shave off his beard. He, he was afraid, you know, that all of America would see his 17 chins. Ah, did they? <laughs> he didn't have 17 chins. He's a freaking saint, for God's sake. He looks great. <laughs> he does look great. He's even older than I am, and he looks great. And vastly amusing. So uh, he was talking about you on the air a couple weeks ago. He really enjoyed doing those diagnoses. Oh, he was great in them. I mean, we did one that was a spoof of um, ER. Yes, he played love an actor, that. Uh, portraying one of the doctors. And then he, I did uh, another TV spoof, and I can't remember what he played in that, a producer or something. Uh, but he was wonderful in all the episodes that he did for us. Yeah, and he had great fun doing them, too, because uh, I'm sure he didn't get too rich playing those parts. And he had, he had a scene with Steve Cannell in, in one of those episodes, mm. and they had a lot of fun together. Oh. Well, he's fun to work with in any event. Uh, Ian is a great guy. Lots of fun. We enjoy him. We abuse him terribly when he's here. <laughs> now, why do you have him on the show? He's never written true crime. No, but uh, we, we often branch out into uh, um, Saint business. Connection? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, into uh, we, we got to book somebody uh, the heck with the true crime part. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, as long as they're, they're entertaining and fun. No, they, we, uh, they, no, it doesn't have to be a writer of true crime. It has to be somebody associated with it. <laughs> Ah. <laughs> so he was once shortchanged at a supermarket, and that uh, qualified him. That qualified him, him yeah. yeah. His memoir is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> I love the picture on the front, which I would hold up to the microphone and show our audience, but they'll, they'll have to go on uh, Amazon or Barnes and & Noble and look for it themselves. Once a Saint is the, uh, the name of that one. It's quite a good book. Very entertaining. He told some of the stories from the book, of course, here on the show. Uh, yeah, there seems to be no one he doesn't know or hasn't slept with. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you ask him, if you ask me too, it's the same with me. Yeah, it's a common problem in show business, as you well know. Yeah, I'm I'm a boring guy. Been married to the same woman, faithful for thirty years. Yeah, well, you're a rarity. <laughs> hey, believe me, I know it in my business. I am. It's my biggest accomplishment. Yeah. Hey, speaking of accomplishments, uh, how is your darling daughter? Who I haven't seen in ages. I'm sure the radio audience is thrilled to hear about my darling daughter. <laughs> yes, my... you have a darling daughter. Does she write? No, she does not write. She doesn't read either. No. <laughs> <laughs> Millennial. <laughs> my, my, my daughter has never read a word I've written, except on a check for her, you know, <laughs> Anything. school for, and everything else. Yeah, well, you know. That's not unusual. Uh, although my, my, my daughter has read uh, my books, but uh, it's not unusual for family members to be the 
the least interested. <laughs> now, my daughter has, has seen some of my TV shows. She's appeared in a couple of them. But she really doesn't take any interest in, in that stuff. You know, she's 23 years old. Her interests are um, sleeping with her boyfriend and sleeping with her boyfriend and getting drunk. No, there's <laughs> that. There's, yeah, we, uh, there's a lot to be said well, for sleeping with her boyfriend. I didn't hear anything bad about it. Also, I have a 23-year-old daughter, and guess what? Same deal. Yeah, she's sleeping with the same boyfriend. She is for the last five years, but that's that's fine by me. And, and she's working for a major management company in town who I compete with. So come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was smart thinking on her part. Yes, it was. <clears throat> I'm not going over there. I'm going to go where the money is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well. That should be the worst. So, uh, yes, Mark Boyer has another question for you. Uh, Spencer for hire and Robert Urich. Yes. Uh, what, was, uh, what was he like? He was wonderful. Um, I don't know if I would have cast him as Spencer myself, but as a human being, as an actor, he was terrific. Spencer for Hire was my first produced uh, television script, so it will always have a very special place in, in my heart. And I, I, I got in, asked backwards, in a way that I would never recommend anybody else try to get into television. It was a fluke even then. I wrote a spec episode of Spencer for Hire and sent it into them, and they bought it and shot it. No. Yeah, which yeah. is really... That doesn't difficult. happen. No, and then <laughs> that they... usually goes straight to the garbage. Yeah, and then they hired me to write three more, and that's how my TV career started. There you go. And those scripts went straight to the garbage, but they got produced. <laughs> so they, they made those. They made I know, those I, but they got shot. produced. That's what it... I was very impressed when that happened. I've never heard of that happening before. And they're still, they're great episodes. They really hold up. Um, it was a fine show to to start my career with. I think it's probably one of the best private detective shows ever on TV. Probably the best ones in my mind are Harry O, The Rockford Files, and The Outsider. And then I would say Spencer for Hire and Terriers after that. What's your favorite TV show? Forget about you writing it or not. My favorite TV show? That's, yeah. That's tough. I know. Um, that's why I ask tough questions. Well, this may be a surprise to you and to my uncle as well, but maybe my favorite TV show is Gunsmoke. Ah, I had a hunch on that one, because you reference it quite often. Yeah, and I came to it late in life for me. Um, six, seven years ago, something like that, I had a bad accident, and I broke both of my arms, and I was stuck at home in, you know, casts and all this special equipment to, you know, bring my arms back to life, and, and I had to stay in this equipment for six or seven hours a day. And so I was like, had nothing to do. And I, I ended up watching episodes of Gunsmoke. I binged it for a year, practically. And not only the TV show, but I also, um, shortly after that period, I did a lot of um, consulting overseas, teaching writers and networks in Sweden, Germany, France, Belgium, all over the place, how to do American-style television shows. And I would listen to the Gunsmoke radio shows. William Conrad. While I was traveling and um, just... I, I really fell in love with the with the writing. Um, it, it's it's it deserves a lot more attention than it has been getting. That series it's you, one of the best ever on radio, and certainly one of the best ever on television. Now you know you probably don't know this, but you share a favorite TV show with the great William Paley. Oh, I know that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and I, I've had arguments about Gunsmoke. I mean, at the, I was aware of Gunsmoke, but I, I remember. Um, Fred Silverman talking about what a horrible show he thought it was and how he wanted to cancel it, and Paley made him keep it on. Paley founded and owned CBS, so, so the audience knows. But yeah, yeah, Fred wanted to get rid of it. He was like 25 years old. He wanted to get rid of it and could not get rid of it. But it rated. Damn show rated. It. They even so brought it back to those uh, TV movie things. He did it's, it's a good. It's a, it was a good show. And when point. they canceled it, it was still in the top twenty. Yep. He, he just didn't like the demos. He didn't like the. It was so rural and old skewing. 
which was, of course, the fate of the shows, ironically, that Fred ended up producing after he left uh, network television. Matt Locke, Jake and the Fat Man, Diagnosis Murder, Heat of the Night, they all skewed so old that half the audience died between seasons. <laughs> True. Murder, she wrote. But, but, but one of his shows that he produced is on, at least one of them is on television every day of the, of the week. And, Steve, you know, there's no shortage of cash there, trust me. But uh, uh, you, you're right. Yeah, they, they skewed old. And he he always pro- he he produced for his his age. If you look at how that worked, um, and picked for his age, but Fred Silverman's a whole other show. So we'll we'll do that another time. But but um, a Gunsmoke, no question, Gunsmoke. Uh, you see the first uh, pilot, like the pilot episode of Gunsmoke, I assume, Lee, where Matt gets it. Yeah. Where, he gets uh, shot. I mean, it's the old you know, shootout between the, the sheriff and the, and the outlaw, yeah. and the the marshal gets shot. <laughs> to teach him a lesson. <laughs> but the the uh, John Wayne impersonation is just so intense at the beginning. It took Ardez uh, a while to find his own voice. And he did. I mean, he he, did. He, James Arness, again, doesn't get the credit he deserves for what he brought to Matt Dillon, especially in the later years. Yeah. When he carried the experiences of the 500 previous episodes on his face. I mean, the character of Matt Dillon, you could see all those experiences, and it played in, in his reaction to every situation he was in. It was a, he made it look easy, but it was a great piece of acting. Favorite TV show that you wrote? Well, I wouldn't say in terms of being a Tiffany credit, but for me the most fun that I had, that was most creatively satisfying, was probably the years I spent on Diagnosis Murder, because I had a blast on that show. And I must compliment Lee, not really because he's my nephew, but because his, I think it was your final Diagnosis Murder book, I think is absolutely fabulous, and anyone who's a fan of this show should read it, because I think he did the most marvelous job of deconstructing the entire thing. Just... Fantastic. Yeah, I left Diagnosis Murder two seasons before it ended because I wanted to be the one producer who worked on that show who had a career afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I always had a final episode of Diagnosis Murder in mind had I stuck with it. And after the series was over, I got asked to write Diagnosis <clears throat> Murder novels, and I wrote eight of them. And I actually ended up writing the final episode that I had always intended to write had I stuck with the series. So that was a great thrill for me. I wonder if, if you had stuck with it, if they would have let you do on TV what you did in that book. Probably, because they let me get away with just about anything I wanted to do on Diagnosis Murder. Well, congratulations, because I, I just think that was fantastic. So, so what is the thing that Burl's talking about that may have been questionable that you say they would have let happen? But well, well I mean, you have to be very familiar with the series, but I, I, I kind of went into the whole father-son relationship that was the center of that show and the absurdity of a doctor running around solving crimes when he should be a patient and he has Mm -hmm. no authority really to be involved in law enforcement and the consequences of his actions coming back to haunt him. Um, So it was was a lot of fun to to play around with the underpinnings of the franchise. So you threw the franchise under the bus? No, no, you never do that. Um, I did not throw it under the bus. I just analyzed the the fundamentals of it and I kept I didn't deconstruct it and take it apart and destroy it no I no. just I just put a microscope on it and use it as a way to explore the characters and their relationships the one thing you never want to do is undermine the franchise of, of whatever it is you're doing whether it's a TV show or a book 
Um, you know, when you do that, you have that phrase, jumping the shark, which everyone knows comes back from happy days. Yes. When there was an episode where Fonzie was water skiing and he water skied over a shark, which just wasn't Wearing happy days. Wearing leather jacket and boots. It was the moment when the producers and writers violated the franchise, when they broke their contract with the viewers. And that's something you don't want to do in any continuing entertainment uh, project, whether it's a movie or a TV show or a series of books. Yeah, you got to be on their side. you got to be with them, not against them. <laughs> yeah, the audience is there for a reason. Yeah. Because they like it. <laughs> they want to see the same show every week, only different. Or they want to read the same book every time, only different. So you don't want you want to give them the fundamentals, but you want to bring something fresh to it at the same time. That's what we do here on this radio show. <laughs> we do? <laughs> I mean, that was your cue, Frank, to oh. bring something fresh to it. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not easy. Hey, have uh, you and Todd ever... Uh, considered uh, doing a project together? No. Uh, good thinking. <laughs> um, Todd and I, while we're very close and we talk all the time and we love the same genre, we're very different writers. Todd thinks of himself more, and I think the, um, the the publishing world thinks of him more as a literary writer, and I'm more of a mainstream, popcorn, escapist kind of writer. We have a different writing voices. Um, we have a similar sense of humor and a similar taste, but I don't know that our voices are compatible. And I don't know that Todd has a history of collaboration. He collaborated with Brad Meltzer on, on a terrific book called House of Secrets, but I come from a large collaboration background, having worked in TV for a long time. Mm -hmm. So it's easy for me to co-author books with other authors. I don't know if it's quite as easy for my brother. Yeah, it's... Uh because I've, I've co-authored uh, with the uh, great Frank C. Gerardo Jr., who's a great journalist, uh, newspaper guy, uh, and uh, we were able to just hit it off perfectly because being a newspaper guy, he's, you know, did that whole editorial thing, working with other writers in that genre, and uh, it works, but if you're not if you're not used to doing it, it could be, a, a, I would imagine, a severe challenge. Yeah. So, you, have to have, so, you have to be uh, able to to not be precious about your writing, to be able to have it rewritten by your co-author and right, vice versa. Right. So the audience may not know, they may or may not know how TV shows are written. They be, they'll see the critical by written by Lee Goldberg, for instance. But there's a writer's room with a lot of people. Yes, and the person in charge, the showrunner, the executive producer, is the, the final voice, the one who's directing the creative direction of the story, and will probably do the final pass on the script. Break down what it's like for an episode. How does an episode start, and then how does Well, it... every show and showrunner are different, so I can only talk about the process that uh, has been familiar to me, and that is you get in a room with the, with the writers, and somebody has an idea, or the showrunner has an idea, and you sit there and you bat it around until you come up with what looks like the shape of a story, and then you throw it up on the wall. You start breaking it out into scenes and acts to see if there's actually uh, a story there. And usually it, it becomes clear in the room that one writer has a particular affinity for that story or is really connecting with it, and they might be the one who gets assigned it uh, to actually write the outline and write the script. Um, but the, the staff all contributes. And then one writer goes off and writes the outline, and then we all give notes on the outline. The writer rewrites it. And then the writer writes his script. The whole staff gives notes on the script. The writer does revisions. And then usually the showrunner will do a production polish just to make sure it's consistent with the voice of the show and everything's smooth. But 
the, the reason you have the whole staff involved is because a TV show is an ongoing machine. You have the show that's shooting, you have the show that's in prep, you have the show that's in editing. There's a, a lot of balls in the air, and you want any writer to be able to jump in and take care of an issue. You know, if there's a, an episode that's in trouble and a scene has to be written, if every writer is as invested in the episode as the writer who actually wrote the script, then anyone can jump in and fix it or answer a question if the director has a question or if uh, a location manager or, or an actor. Um, so we, basically we all feel invested in every single episode, not just the ones that we write. That's good. <laughs> that's important. I can recall one time you and I were together, and I don't know what series it was, but uh, maybe it was uh, Baywatch, maybe it was one of the other ones, where uh, you're going to shoot a scene uh, outdoors on the beach or something, and the weather turned bad. I, it was an episode, well, it's happened to me before many times, but the, the worst situation was I was doing the series Cobra up in Vancouver. It started Michael Dudikoff as a... Uh, a spy, and we had this incredible action sequence all planned where he'd inf infiltrated a rogue military unit, and we had tanks and all the stuff we were going to be doing in the forest. Incredible climax for the episode, but a blizzard came into Vancouver, <laughs> and we had to move our production to our nearest covered set. And our nearest covered set was actually for the episode we were about to shoot. It was a high school gymnasium. So the big finale of our show was in a high school gymnasium. It made no sense whatsoever. <laughs> it was horrible. But we had no choice because you can't put off production. You have another show shooting, you know, the next day or the, the over the weekend, the after the weekend. You you just can't shut down. You have to just move forward. And I wanted to have like a a subtitle on the episode that said, I know this is a piece of shit. It wasn't our fault. There was a blizzard. But you, you can't do that. You just have to roll with what, what happens. Um, it was a terrible episode. Well, I tell you, when Lee gave me a great opportunity to do something. I always wished I could do it. I, I did it. I was uh, at this Christmas party, and I'm sitting there with the... the name escapes me now, but he was the he was in uh, Mad, 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 Mad World with Arnold Stang, the guy people always get him confused with. With Arnold Stang? <laughs> yeah. There's only yeah. everybody famous in comedy. Yeah. Maybe in he's the guy, the guy with the gas Arnold station Stang. with Arnold Stang. Yeah, the two okay. of them are together, right? And we're having this conversation, and he brings up uh, usual suspects, whether the show was you did up in Canada. Oh, likely suspects. Yeah, so. and he says, uh, I did this show, likely suspects. I'll be damned. I could not tell for the life of me if it was supposed to be a drama, if it was supposed to be a comedy. I have, I got to that thing like Woody Allen does where he pulls Marshall McLuhan out. Yeah. <laughs> I call Lee on the phone and said, here, here's the right. He'll tell you what it is. <laughs> That's funny. And Lee said, yes. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> Was that was a show that was way, way, way ahead of its time. It was on Fox, and there was a detective who solved a mystery. I can't remember who the actor was. Sam McMurray. Um, a, 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 a cop who's solving a murder with his partner, the audience. The audience was a character. People talked to the camera. People referred to the camera as if it was another detective in the room. It was uh, a great show. We did 13 episodes, and we got a lot of critical attention for it, but just didn't catch on. And uh, I think now it would have played a lot better than it did whenever it was we did it 20 years ago, 30 years ago. <laughs> we did it when Fox first started. Um, it was a lot of fun. But it was a, it was a great conceit. The people would, the, 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 no one ever told the camera what its name was or referred to it by whether it was a male or female, but the camera was treated as the partner of the detective. So all the clues, everything were right in front of the viewer. 
he saw everything. And um, it was a real difficult show to write, to trick the viewer, even though they saw the clues and revealed who the killer was. Oh, yeah, you can't do that thing where you hide something like, oh, here's a clue you didn't know. No, it was a very, very tough show to write. Um, but it was, it was great fun. Uh, it, was, it really disappointed me that it did not succeed. Well, sometimes the shows are just uh, too good for the moment. And, and you're talking about early Fox. Yes, it was an early Fox Network show. Yeah, I mean, how long was America's Most Wanted on? The Simpsons are still on. Yeah. See, I mean, that's even uh, Married with Children, their couches in the Smithsonian. <laughs> Who would have thought? Johnny Carson's couches in Matza. Yes, it's out in the out in the out, outside the door. <laughs> but that reminds me of a funny story. We were doing diagnosis murder, and the Dick Van Dyke's house on the show was an actual house in Malibu. We rented a house on mm. on Broad Beach, and and we furnished it, and we shot there, you know, three days a week, and. <laughs> As it happened, I'm flipping through the channels one night, and I catch one of those softcore porn shows on, on Cinemax. Yeah. And there's this you know, three-way happening on the couch of our set. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, our diagnosis murder house, our furniture, you know, there's Dr. Mark Sloan's couch, and there's, you know, three women going at it <laughs> with some pizza delivery guy, and... <laughs> And I'm looking at this, I, I couldn't believe it. And the next day I come into work and Dick Van Dyke says, you're not going to believe what I saw last time. I said, you saw a freeway on your couch. Said, yes. So I, I had to call up the people we rented the house from. And I said, look, I know we don't have an exclusive on the house. But it's our furniture. Our set. Get some scotch porn, guard. If you're going to be shooting porn in that house, you can't use the, the, the furniture from diagnosis murder. I mean, or, or use me, right? <laughs> <laughs> so we had to have that couch fumigated. And you think? It was a very was, popular couch. It was, it was quite a shock to see that. Well, I think that Magic Matt Allen uh, thought that uh, his f future fame would be assured by owning Johnny Carson's couch for The Tonight Show. <laughs> Oh, not really. <laughs> no, and much to his uh, shock, chagrin, and mortification. It's, it's actually 10 feet from us right now. Yeah. Is that the one right there? Yeah. There it is. I'm looking at it right now, Johnny Carson's uh, couch. No, no that's, that's not it. It's in no. a box. So, it's, it's in a box. It's in a box. box but you'd think that would be in the Smithsonian. Instead of, um, you know. Well, he had a lot of couches. That's the problem. Like, it's not like Archie Bunker's chair that was the same for the whole run of the show. I mean, who remembers... Johnny Carson's couch. I don't think anybody does. No offense. Well, no, they don't. Carol Wayne. <laughs> Carol Wayne. What happened to Carol Wayne on Johnny Carson's couch? <laughs> she was a fine actress who passed way too early. Come on now. Yeah, she drowned, didn't she? She did. <laughs> yeah, in four feet of water. Not even, no, four inches of water. Four inches of water? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, that sounds and that, highly and her, suspect and her, to and me. And her used car boyfriend, which is very interesting. This is the same guy that was with Diana Linkletter the night that she died. Oh. There's a, a book for Burl. Well, Burl was working the UPI wire that night. Oh. And it was amazing how the story changed from when it first came over the wire to 12 hours later. Yeah. <laughs> Very totally different story 12 hours later. But I had another friend of mine it's who was like talking on the phone. It was there at the time. Kind of yeah. like the Natalie Wood murder. Yeah. Did I say murder? You said murder. murder. Yeah. Oops, slip of the tongue. Yeah. That happens. So uh, we've, you've already written the next uh, <laughs> Ludlow novel. What's yeah. the uh, What's the TV show that you uh, 
have in your head that isn't done yet? The TV show I have in my head that isn't done yet? Yeah, you have one in your head. You haven't done it. And you think I'm going to share it with you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I could think and leave. I I tried. (laughs) I tried. What show did you want to watch that didn't? (laughs) I want to get this. (laughs) He's going to keep working at it. All right, go ahead. Ask your question. Yeah. Uh, what show did you want to write for but didn't get a chance to? Oh, there's been so many. Um, I would have loved to have written for Hill Street Blues, and um, I would have loved to write for a show called Terriers. I didn't get to write for that. I would have liked to have written for Castle. There are a million shows. Um, you know, before my time, I would have you know, before I was born, I would have liked to have written for Gunsmoke and and Maverick and The Saint and The Avengers. It takes a thief. I mean. I did get to write Mannix, even though um, yeah. Mannix was long over by the time I uh, became a writer-producer. I brought Mike Connors back and did an episode of Diagnosis Murder where I took a, an episode of Mannix from 25 years earlier, brought back the guest cast, and used the original episode for flashbacks. That was so that very was clever. Fun. Very clever. I love, I love that one. <laughs> Needless to say, Gail Fisher wasn't there. <laughs> no, she wasn't. She was too ill at the time. Oh. I remember that episode. I was so impressed at that. Now, that's my kind of TV. Well, you may not remember this, but your mother and my mother were both on the set. Really? Uh, yeah, I invited Dana and my mom, and, and they spent the first day there, and Mike Connors and Dick Van Dyke took pictures with them, and I don't know what happened to those pictures, but um, Dana and, and mom loved it for the first hour. And then they got bored out of their minds. They realized the same scene was being repeated again and again from different angles. How long does it take to do a, a, to shoot a one-hour TV Back episode? then, we were shooting episodes of Diagnosis Murder in six or seven days. That's fast. That's zivoted. Yeah. I talked to someone who worked on uh, Highway Patrol. Roderick Crawford. Roderick Crawford. 10-4, 10-4, 10-4. They, they were doing them uh, in five days, and then they boosted the production schedule up to three. <laughs> Which gave yeah, no reason for Broderick Crawford those, to drink more. Those, those, was half, that was a half hour. That was a 30-minute show, right? Yeah. yeah. 22 minutes. Mike Connors did a unsold spinoff from Highway Patrol, where he played a Highway Patrol motorcycle officer. Really? Well, that's chippy. <laughs> oh. And interestingly, the episode was based on a short story by John D. McDonald. Why do I know this crap? I don't know. <laughs> it's a genetic fault. <laughs> I remember when Mike Connors did... Uh, with a tightrope. Remember that? I do. Yeah. Then they expanded it to a very violent full hour and called it something else, which escapes me, but you would pro- you probably know it. No, they, I think they just called it tightrope. I don't think they changed the name. Huh. This goes to show what I know. I'll have to look that one up now. So you got, uh, you may have a uh, movie interest in your, <laughs> it cracks me up to see a love little series. <laughs> I get a big kick out of that. Um. Howard, before Burl starts rambling on, did we abuse him enough? Who, uh, Burl or, or Lee? <laughs> no, you. Oh. No, we never abuse him enough. Oh, no, okay. never enough. That's correct. Okay. <laughs> and 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 Lee's holding back. Well, I'm just holding back my own creative ideas that I'm not ready to share with you and the world at large. <laughs> well, my life's an open book. Just fire away. Well, I'm I'm sure Matt, uh, the beloved producer of uh, this wonderful show, would love to hear to find out. How long was Burl a crazy loony commie? A crazy loony what? Commie. They think I'm a commie. A communist? 
Uh, I can think of many things to describe my uncle. <laughs> communist would not be one of them. <laughs> well, you know that, and what's, I know that. What's, 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 worse, what's worse than communist? <laughs> Republican. <laughs> Trump supporter uh, would be worse than communist. Okay. Well, you're the right place for that. <laughs> Uh, you must be one of those Hollywood liberals we hear all about. I am. Yeah, you're I probably am. an elitist too. <laughs> yeah, I'm very elitist. I live in a gated community. I'm I'm about I'm, I'm a, a Hollywood elitist Jew. Proud of it. Yeah. Yeah, uh, The last time I was stopped by the police was in Calabasas. Someone had gifted me, bless their heart, a bright canary yellow 1987 Buick. Uh, which was in great shape, and uh, I had to uh, go to a meeting with a public relations firm that's in Calabasas, and on my way there, I was stopped for driving a 1987 bright yellow Buick. <laughs> and the uh, guy says, you don't mind if I search your car, do you? And I said, go right ahead, because I just got the car from a little old lady uh, who did one of these pay it forward, just, you know, give someone a car. And he opens up the trunk, and there was... <laughs> A round white ball of something in the trunk. I think it was lye used for, uh, you know, barking up baseball things. And he comes and goes, look what I found. What is it? And I said, why don't you taste it? Oh, God. <laughs> and he did. <laughs> and Lee, Lee, always a pleasure to, to do a whole hour with you. And next time you'll do it from the live here at the... Uh, Light up Light up lounge. Does he really want to actually see Burroughs? <laughs> yeah, well, there's that. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Lee. Talk to yeah. you soon. My pleasure. Yep. All right, Lee. Hey, Burrow. Yeah. What's next? Magic Matt Allen of the Demons of Duncan is live with the Light Up Lounge on OutlawRadioLive.com. When I wake up in the morning, love.